Hello and welcome to the podcast edition of our new show. It's called The Indie Jigsaw Show. Episode 1 coincides with the anniversary of the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. We're joined with guests from Scottish CND to consider how are we going to get rid of Trident from Scotland. If you'd like to watch the YouTube version of this show, it is on the Independence Live's YouTube channel. Hello and welcome to episode one of the Indie Jigsaw Show. And Molly's going to tell you what the main theme of this episode is. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, uh, Fiona. So the main theme is all about nuclear weapons, Trident, the ones based down the Clyde, how we might get rid of them. Is that possible? We've got three guests coming in. Uh, uh, we have Bill Ramsey. So Bill is the convener of the SNP CND group. And we've got Isabel Lindsay. Isabel is co-chair of Scottish CND. And we also have John Cairns, who has recently joined Scottish CND as their campaign coordinator. In the background to this conversation this week, end of January, is the first anniversary of the UN Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And in March, there's going to be the first of what will be a, a COP meeting for that treaty. It's going to be in Vienna, hopefully in March. Sometimes these things are getting postponed a little bit at the moment. The UK CND have commissioned a report being written by Dr. Rebecca Johnson, who is somewhat of an expert on UN nuclear arms treaties. Uh, the report is called Nuclear Weapons Are Banned. What does this mean for Britain? So Dr. Johnson launched that report just a few days ago, and that's going to form the background to our conversation with Bill and Isabel and John. And before we get to the interview, we have there was a debate in Holyrood opened by Bill Kidd, who, of course, has worked very closely with the United Nations in their campaign to bring this treaty about and has been a, a real champion for many, many years in, yes. in the Scottish Parliament. So the next clip is uh, Bill Kidd, MSP, who is opening the debate in Holyrood last week to mark the first anniversary of the TPNW. I think I've got those letters okay now. Anyway, for those of you who are not so familiar, Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear, nuclear weapons. weapons. I think it's not that uh, widely known that uh, Bill himself was included in a nomination for Nobel Peace, Peace Prize uh, a few years back, 2016-17, I think it was, part of a group of people who were nominated for all their campaign work um, in uh, for non-proliferation of uh, nuclear weapons. So here he is. This Saturday coming marks the one-year anniversary of the entry into force of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. As the motion for this debate highlights, the NPT review conference was scheduled to take place this month. However, as uh, you may be aware, this was postponed due to the pandemic, and it is now likely that the NPT review conference will take place in August, so, where I am determined uh, to be able to attend in person as the head of delegation for PNND, or Parliamentarians for Nuclear Non-Proliferation and Disarmament, and that is why we use the uh, abbreviation, as you can tell. Um, as co-president of PNND, I, I thought I laughed there because I thought it was fun. As co-president of PNND, I will be representing parliamentarians um, from across the globe who are committed to seeing the implementation of total nuclear disarmament. 
Today we are debating two international treaties, the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, or NPT, and the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, otherwise known as the Ban Treaty. Both of these are of critical importance to nuclear disarmament. And firstly, the NPT has been in force since 1970 as a landmark international treaty through which nuclear states committed to stop the proliferation of nuclear arms. The UK, the US, Russia, China and France, all of whom are permanent members of the Security Council at the UN, are nuclear state members of this treaty. It is therefore a highly important international treaty that needs to be respected by all of its members as it underpins critical international security structures. The treaty commits its members to stop the proliferation of nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons technology to other countries and to stop an increase in their own nuclear weapons stockpiles. Moreover, in signing this treaty, the P5 members all committed in international law to further the goal of achieving nuclear disarmament and actively work towards complete nuclear disarmament. So this treaty is hugely important, and yet the NPT entered into force over 50 years ago, and total nuclear disarmament very obviously hasn't been achieved. Moreover, there are worrying instances of non-compliance from nuclear states in recent years, including from the current UK government. As international security concerns heighten and the world changes, we need fresh impetus to encourage nuclear states to renew their investment into the nuclear disarmament process. I believe that this is where the new International Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or the Ban Treaty, comes in. The threat of nuclear arms has not diminished, and the commitment of nuclear states to no first use of these weapons is welcome, but it is not enough. The nuclear disarmament debate needs to be reframed and diplomatic thinking needs to be renewed. Nuclear armed states need to reconcile their security strategies with the moral question of whether nuclear weapons would ever be right to use. Nuclear weapons are indiscriminate. They do not target only a military base. And they, they actually devastate entire nations, including hundreds of thousands of civilians who in any country cannot afford to have to bear the weight of the actions of their leaders. The Ban Treaty is, like the NPT, a landmark treaty. For the first time ever, non-nuclear states and civil society led an international treaty on nuclear disarmament. This perhaps ironically helped the NPT in its 50-year-old commitment to stop the proliferation of nuclear weapons to non-nuclear states. The SNP um, has stood firm in its opposition to nuclear weapons, along with the many invaluable civil society organisations here in Scotland, as MSPs from across the parties continue to do in our CPG on nuclear disarmament. I must mention, as convener of our cross-party group on nuclear disarmament, that here in the Scottish Parliament we stand for the majority wish of the Scottish people across parties and our commitment to ridding Scotland of the nuclear weapons that are currently stored here against our will. As many here will be aware, the international NGO called ICANN was the driver of getting the Ban Treaty into the United Nations, accepted and ratified in international law. They won the Nobel Peace Prize for this work. An atomic bomb survivor 
whom many of us have met, an incredible woman called Sitsuko Thurlow, accepted this award on their behalf. After the atomic bomb was first made, her fellow Nobel Peace Prize winner, Albert Einstein, commented, I do not fear the explosive power of the atomic bomb. What I fear is the explosive power of evil in the human heart. As much as deterrence argument can persuade some, I believe it can never rule out or compensate for this aspect of the reality that evil actions do take place and can sometimes override the good governance of nations. The only way out of this is through total nuclear disarmament and continued oversight of international agencies on compliance. Although until recently the Cold War had felt gone, long gone even, and it could easily be pushed to, uh, to the back of our minds, the threat of these weapons has not diminished. We have a responsibility, whether Scotland is devolved or independent, to look at this reality head on. I am pleased that the majority of MSPs have signed the ICANN pledge to support the ban treaty, and this means that there is enough political will and commitment within this Parliament to stand together in working for an end to the danger to the world's long-term future that nuclear weapons stand for. Going back to our cross-party group on nuclear disarmament, I want to take this opportunity to mention the work of all the organisations involved in the cross-party group on, uh, on nuclear disarmament who have continued in their efforts over the years to promote the nuclear disarmament agenda amongst Scottish parliamentarians and the general public of our country. I must particularly mention Janet Fenton, the ICANN Scottish Liaison and Chair of Scottish CND, who has worked tirelessly in this regard and been a tremendous help in the cause. Alongside these partners, I will be attending the first meeting of state parties in Vienna this March, COVID rules allowing, to develop the ban treaty rules further, and I encourage my fellow MSPs from across the Chamber to do likewise, if at all possible. And I thank you very much indeed. Now that we've had the, the scene setting from Holyrood, let's go and meet our special guests for this month. And I'm uh, very pleased to welcome our three guests with us. So we have Isabel Lindsay, Phil Ramsey and John Cairns, all associated with uh, Scottish CND, as you've heard. So um, yeah, thanks all of you for, for being prepared to, to come on the programme. The Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Can you just tell us something about this treaty? There have been previous UN treaties connected with um, nuclear weapons. Could you say a little bit about how this one's come about and uh, is it different in any way from, from previous efforts? Yeah, I think the origins of this really go back to about 2010. Actually go back a bit longer than that in a sense. And the Non-Proliferation Treaty Conference in that year uh, produced a lot of frustration, but this had been building up because the origins going back to 960 of the Non-Proliferation Treaty was a kind of deal, a kind of bargain that the existing nuclear powers at that time would maintain their nuclear weapons at that point, but other nations would all sign up to a commitment not to go nuclear. Now, this, of course, was at the end of the 60s. You had all the campaigning, all the crisis like Cuba and concerns. Um, so that was a big step forward. 
Article 6 of the Non-Proliferation Treaty committed the existing nuclear powers, although they, they were keeping their nuclear weapons for that period, but to uh, take serious efforts uh, to ensure that they would be working towards the total abolition of nuclear weapons. Now, uh, key players on the uh, non-nuclear side among the nations were getting more and more frustrated because the, the nuclear powers were just tr treating that Article 6 with contempt. Uh, far from stepping back in terms of they were constantly modernising and developing and so on. So there, there was an anxiety to do something else, to take this forward separately. And it started with an, an, several conferences. Uh, Norway convened one, Mexico was another, on the humanitarian consequences of nuclear war. And you know, this was to establish the basic principles. Uh, and then this moved on to uh, a number of countries convening uh, a conference. And eventually in 2017 in New York to try to have a treaty on, and to make this a United Nations treaty. They had uh, about 150 states attending this conference. Uh, obviously, the UK didn't. <laughs> mm. We can go on to discuss the implication of it because it, it, it's not just not possessing nuclear weapons, it's not collaborating in any way in their manufacture or transportation. Or, you know, so it's, it, it's very comprehensive. And yeah. then what happened was that they managed to get, they had to get over 50 states uh, uh, signing this at United Nations. They achieved that, uh, and uh, they, so that made it an international treaty, an international United Nations treaty. They, they now have 59 states who have ratified this formally, uh, and they have another 25 who have signed up to it, haven't yet formally ratified. So it's a big step. Yes. So, so it sounds like basically it's come out of the, the five, well, there's five recognised nuclear powers, aren't there? UK is one of them. Of course, there are other nuclear, other, other states that have nuclear weapons. So it sounds like it's come out of a certain intransigence amongst those nuclear powers to actually do anything. And Bill, if you get anything you want to add to, to what Isabel said? Because of the UK media and because we are in the United Kingdom, the importance of the treaty is downplayed by the media. You've got, as, as Isabel said, 86 countries started the ball rolling. And now we've got 59 who have ratified. In other words, when you ratify it, it means that you are bound by it. And the other states, other ones will get round to it um, at some point when their parliaments ratify it and so on and things like that. It's technical reasons will take, take them time and probably others as well. But it shows you that the vast majority of the countries of the world, there is a global consensus that something has to be done. And that's the point. And I think in that sense, it's crucial we get across to the independence movement that this is the normal position. It's not just the yeah. rational position, which is important, obviously, but it's actually the normal position of a, the vast majority of states within the world. And like other treaties that have been ratified, over a period of time, more and more states join them. 
until you end up with a small minority who have not joined them. And I think one of the important things is the report that was published last week, Rebecca Johnson yeah. was the author of it, and, and also the, 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 the one of the organisations that's key behind it, the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, called ICANN, which was important in taking it forward. The main nuclear powers didn't like it, they don't like it, and mm-hmm. tried to stymie it, slow it down, and it's not worked particularly mm-hmm. well, because now you've got um, some NATO countries are sending observers. And I mean, they're not pleased about that. There was a, le- a left government elected in the, in Norway and they're sending observers. And the new coalition in Germany, they're sending observers and that's two, two NATO states. And hopefully that sort of momentum will grow. And so the power of the, the permanent five to, to keep other states away from the nuclear issue will erode. So it really is quite important. And that meeting in Vienna, it's due to take place at the end of March though uh, Rebecca mentioned in her presentation last week that that, you know, depends on the COVID context in Austria at the time. But that really, it's actually a cop. I mean, everybody who will be listening to this, you know, when you, when you broadcast it, are now familiar what a, a cop is because yeah, yeah. of COP26. Well, actually, the meeting that takes place in Vienna at the end of March is actually the COP1 of the TPNW. Oh. Right. So it's, it's, it's at that status, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And there are people going from, as well as Bill Kidd, you know, parliamentarians, and Bill is the president of the, the, the global PNND, which is a long, Parliamentarians Against Nuclear Weapons, it's a, it's a global organisation of parliamentarians from all over the world. Bill is one of the co-presidents, as well as the politicians, as well as the diplomats from the various countries, the 56 ratifying states. Uh, there, there will be a lot of people, as there was at COP26, not in the same scale, of course, but there will representative of, of, of civic organisations. And some of us intend to go as part of civic support through CND. Yeah. So, um, I mean, let's hope it never gets as far as its own COP26, and let's hope, you know, <laughs> we can get some. It's happening a long time before that, actually. But, um, can I just pick up yeah, on, go on something that Isabel yeah. said about Article 6? about not increasing stockpiles but decreasing stockpiles and of course last year in the integrated review the RUK government increased uh, their nuclear warheads from 180 to 260 um, which is completely in contravention of article 6 and their response to that accusation was simply to say no it's not and that was as far as it went so I think a crucial role for TPNW is to pick up on that sort of behaviour and to very more, much more clearly say this is unacceptable. And that approach is being adopted by the states who have signed, the states who have ratified, and hopefully the other supporting states. Um, so it's a step forward from, TP, uh, from MPT in that regard. And I think it's, it's a clear role for TPNW. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it does. That's really that's really helpful to to have that um to have that perspective on it, and it it also sounds like it's a bit different in as much as civic society, civic organisations are, are are being asked to to take part in that. Is that is that correct? Oh yes, I mean ICANN, yes. the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, was one of the prime movers of it, and that's a sort of you could possibly say it's a sort of global civic organisation, mm-hmm. and that's. That really is quite important. The, the, the reason why that's very important is, of course, that there's been, a, as Bill said, there's been a great deal of pressure 
from the nuclear powers not to have this go ahead at all, you know, over a number of years. And NATO in particular has twisted a lot of arms, not just of its own members, but of neutrals like Finland and Sweden to try and stop them ratifying, which they haven't yet done. Um, so, I mean, there's a recognition that what's very important here is getting civic organisations within many of these countries to do the internal campaigning uh -huh. yeah. um, uh, to push their governments. Yeah, I think an important part of what Isabel just said as well is the ICANN Cities project, that cities within the P5 or the N5, whichever you wish to call them, have signed up to supporting the treaty. So, for example, New York has, which might be quite surprising, Glasgow and Edinburgh both have, Manchester, and there are a good few others. So cities across the world within states that are not supporting TPNW are publicly signing up to support it. So that, hopefully, we can build on that momentum as well and put pressure on the governments within those states. Yeah. yeah. I mean, ICANN produced a really interesting opinion poll last year on the public attitudes to the PP TPNW in, in the NATO countries. And the yes majorities for the TPNW in NATO countries, and I've got a list here, Nor uh, Norway 78%, Iceland 86 Belgium, Canada, Denmark, Italy, Netherlands, Spain, all well above 70%. The UK is about 58%, um, but the no's are down in the you know tens and the mm -hmm. low teens. I mean, in some countries, I mean, like in Italy, 87%, um, Spain, 89%. So there's large numbers. The public in these countries very much support it. And interestingly, they did another one about the countries that, that host, this, you know, some of the nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons or whatever. We don't have the figures for Turkey, but if you take Belgium, Netherlands, Germany and Italy, Belgium 57%, Netherlands 58%, Germany 83% to get rid of the American nukes in their country and in Italy 74 So there is really big public opinion uh, support for the TPNW. But of course, on our media, you won't hear about it. No. To pick up on what Bill said about the UK, in spite of the UK's refusal um, to sign TPNW and actively promote against it, 59% of public opinion in the UK want the government, across the UK, want the government to sign up. And that's 50% Conservative voters, 68% of Labour voters. So it's not just by the normal demographics, it's not by age, it's not by region, it's not by intention to vote, that's of the total public. The public in this the UK are in favour of signing, but the government are just completely ignoring that. So even locally this is true. Yeah. I think this is where Scotland is so important to the TPNW for reasons I'll explain, and the TPNW is so important to Scotland. The reason why prospects of an independent Scotland are so important to the TPNW is obviously none of their existing uh, uh, member states have nuclear weapons. Oh. Um, but the situation in Scotland is that we are an outstanding example of... Uh, 
a country and there's a specific provision in the treaty for a country which is hosting the weapons of another state uh, and the procedures in place there. But because we are the host, because we've got the biggest site, and certainly in Western Europe, uh, of nuclear weapons, and these are going up in numbers, that if Scotland became independent, if, as we have had commitments <laughs> uh, to do so, there was an immediate ratification of the treaty, this would be the great example of the treaty in operation, yes. of uh, re uh, requiring the UK by international law to remove all of these weapons. Yes. yes. And uh, at the same time, it's a great help to an independent Scotland because we always had the power to say, remove these weapons from Scotland. But it is so much easier if you're doing this within the context of a United Nations treaty with all the international backing uh, of the member states in so doing. So it makes the pathway so much easier for Scotland. Yes. You've raised one of the points that came up in the launch event uh, a few days back of the, the, the CND re report, where Dr. Rebecca Johnson, um, who's the author of the, of the report, she talked a bit about the report and where it came from, but she also said one of the starting off points for her was in trying to think, why do some countries rely on nuclear weapons for their security? I mean, is it real security uh, in the first place? But also, what sort of things drive that? because those wishes are there, then that drives their policy making. So, you know, what, what, what might change that, the direction of that policy making? And she came up with um, five uh, scenarios. At this point, we're going to break away just for a few minutes from Bill and Isabel and John, and we're going to show you a clip from the launch of Rebecca Johnson's uh, report. And this is Rebecca describing five scenarios that she suggests could be the kind of scenario, the kind of world events that might just push people, push governments and countries to think again about their nuclear weapons policies. So here she is, Dr. Rebecca Johnson. And essentially we came to these five uh, basic scenarios and I, I think they cover, you know, what would be the major ways in which policy might change. But I want to stress they're not consecutive and they're, and they're different. And in a way, what they are are feasible, but we don't know if they're likely, some more likely than others. But we start with the one that should be really the reason for uh, the UK to have security policies, defence policies on anything. And, and that is what will keep us safe, the security case. And to tie that into the economic case, because you can't get gold-plated security if you can't afford it and you need to think about what the balances are and really what are the security challenges of today so it was to look at that first but the second of those was looking at the idea of a, a another nuclear accident a huge shock or even a, a use of nuclear weapons whether by accident or intention somewhere in the world and that's the kind of shock theory. And that's one that, you know, we're often told is the only thing that would do it. 
The third one was if Scotland should vote for becoming nuclear free and independent. And we obviously have Kirsten here as a member of parliament from Scotland to talk about that. But this was a very interesting one to look at because actually a lot of scholars think this is possibly the most likely route to really put the kind of pressures and, and change the calculus. And then we looked at the kind of idea that, well, the UK actually deep down knows it needs to get rid of nuclear weapons. It's trying to make a club with the other nuclear armed states, or at least five of them, uh, that we call the NPT5, but they're also members of the Security Council, and that's all attached to status and, and those kinds of issues. But um, Britain's also part of NATO. And uh, we all know clubbable behaviour often means if your friends are doing something, it makes it more likely, more possible. It opens up the, 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 the discussions a little bit more. So the fourth one was actually, OK, well, we know that there are a number of NATO states that are actually very interested in, in the treaty. Some even helped in, in, in the whole process, the humanitarian disarmament process that led to the treaty. So what would happen or how could we get to the situation where a number of uh, countries that currently have nuclear deterrence alliances with the US or through NATO were to decide that they actually wanted those security alliances to be nuclear free? What would that look like? And would that have an influence on the UK? And then finally is the one that we're, we're often told is probably the only way we're going to do it. But we have to really question and recognise that a lot of factors come into that, which is the UK votes in elections and we get governments that decide that they want to be nuclear free and they therefore want not to spend the money on renewing Trident and, and so on. So those are the scenarios. And in some ways, I think that those are actually the most interesting part of the report. So having heard those five scenarios from Rebecca, we're going to go back to our guests. Those five scenarios, now they are all about focusing on the UK. But obviously, if any of them happened, or, or maybe a combination, they would presumably have ripple effects around, around the world. So did any of these scenarios strike you? Well, I suppose the third one not strikes us about Scotland, but do you think those scenarios are, you know, fair? Are they, you know, do they yeah. work? I think in terms of the first scenario, that we also have to look at what's happening in feminist studies, because yeah. a lot of the research that's coming out of the feminist studies about the nature of machismo, the people who have control over the weapons have come through a particular system within the military um, and to a certain extent within politics, where being stronger is crucial. Having a bigger gun is an obvious example, shall I say. Um, and I think that's quite important. And also later in the document, Rebecca seems to be not opposed to, but very concerned about the waiting for the accident to happen that it's really important that we don't have to wait for the accident to happen and yes. that a lot of activity has to take place to stop the accident happening before yeah. we allow the accident to make us stop the weapons, if you see what yeah. I mean. Yeah, so yeah. I definitely would pick up on both of those points. Yeah. The two, two things here. The accident thing is, is really important. When you actually look into it in detail, the number of accidents that have already occurred and have been stopped through some human intervention, someone who has broken the rules, stepped in and stopped it. The number of them is phenomenal. I mean, every 
few weeks I'm picking up more and more and more. I mean, Brian Quayle, you know, will, will tell you about loads over the years. Brian's good on that. But the the number of and, and it's getting and, and the likelihood of an accident is much worse. I, I don't think uh, that any of the nuclear states, and I'm not just tech, talking about the, the, the permanent five, but the others uh, are likely to to use them deliberately. But I think there's a good chance and an increasing and an increasing chance that there's going to be an accidental launch, because as we know, because of the development of uh, artificial intelligence and other things, there are bits of the systems that are being handed over. The de- some some of the decision making is not within the human context. I mean, all the powers would swear blind that they are, but they are. And this is the same in conventional weaponry as well, with IT coming in and remote, uh, remote decision making. And the likelihood of even, even more accidents, because they're happening all the time, but even more mistakes, is, is actually going to increase. And there's an organisation called BASIC that has done a lot of work on that particular area. That's particularly frightening in that, in that regard. And the other area in terms of the supposed rationale, and most people who will be listening to this will have heard of the concept of the military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower first addressed in one of his last speeches as president. But actually, I think that needs to be revisited. Just look when people say peace is a self-explanatory statement. Well, actually, it isn't. And it's the same in the military-industrial complex. The, 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 the influence of the military-industrial complex is growing all the time. In other words, like Obama, for instance, has started a programme of supposed modernisation of the American nuclear weapons, costing trillions. Even hawks in the United States say that some of this is unnecessary. They, they come up with you know, new, you know, an excuse to build a new nuclear weapon. And that is a serious, serious problem as well. Mm-hmm. They come up with you know, re- re- renewal of this, renewal of that, instead of downgrading, instead of reducing... Yeah. Increasing. Yeah. When you say that, are, are you suggesting then that coming up with a, you know, a, a new, an upgrading it, a new weapon, that's more to do with feeding the needs of the military-industrial complex than it is to do with the needs of security? Oh yeah, and there's another aspect to this, which I'm, I'm actually at the moment, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of thinking about this, but nothing in paper. But the analogy, and this, no disrespect to, to folk who are religious or a, a, the Catholic Church, but I think the analogy I think of is the 16th century church when it was one of the intellectual centers of yeah. Europe. Now they knew certain things about astronomy and mathematics. They knew it. But they but, but some of the things that were being said for political cultural reasons couldn't be addressed whatsoever. And so one of the things the military industrial complex is gives money to universities in all sorts of ways. So that you, you now have academics who there are certain things that they can't touch or they won't go near. And because I'm looking at these areas, it's fascinating in one sense and unfortunate in another. When you look at the, the cartwheels, intellectual cartwheels, that some military academics will go through to try and pretend that, mm. that, that this doesn't mean that. Well, in, you know, in reality, you know, some, so they're getting money to some, and, and they ignore certain things. They simply yeah. will not address it. Just like in the 16th, certain, certain issues, if you start to address it in public, <laughs> then you get burned. Well, nowadays, if you start to address it, then your funding will be cut. And I'm talking yeah. about not just in the, in, in the military, but I'm talking about in the analytical community as well. They simply won't address certain things because you know it's going to cut their funding. I think also we should be aware in terms of this kind of economic factor that it does also apply 
further down the scale in terms of economic interests. You know, it was really quite amazing when Corbyn was at his height. Now, Jeremy Corbyn is a long, long time supporter uh, of nuclear disarmament, a vice president of CND. I can remember speaking with him (laughs) at meetings in the early 80s. And yet he was forced to realise or he was told that you will not get a commitment but to stop the new Trident programme through party conference. And the reason why that was a no-go area, I mean, I was quite shocked when I saw some of the very left people saying, no, no, we can't touch this. And the reason why is because you would not get the backing of two big trade unions, the GMW in particular, but because, because there's also, a fi- I mean, these are seem such small scale things in one sense, but because it's battle between Unite and the GMW for declining membership and so on, Unite couldn't come in because there are all these workers in battle desperate for the submarine orders and they've got members and all kinds of installations. And certainly the military side, I I, I know someone addressing during the referendum campaign, it was GMW group there representing their their military uh, members. And he said it was one of the nastiest meetings (laughs) during the referendum campaign that he had undergone. Now, this is because there's a lot of understandable economic security. And we, we can dismiss this. We've got to be positive about it. And there are unions like Unison, of course, who are very positive because they can see that money that comes away from dense yeah. budgets can go into social budgets. Yes, yes. That, I mean, that obviously identifies, you know, quite a lot of work. Well, I suppose maybe dialogue um, there about Rebecca's first scenario, because, you know, it's the basic question. Are these nuclear weapons really uh, making us secure? Are they really mm-hmm. kind of safe? And are there not other options where we could produce a, a world that's as and hopefully safer? And, and presumably, you know, the weapons of some sort would still need manufactured mm-hmm. and the people in the mm-hmm. unions involved in that would still get some support yeah. from that. So maybe that brings us on to, mm-hmm. or shall we go back, I should say, to the now to the, the third scenario, the one about Scotland becoming independent. So Isabel, you've already kind of you know told us that that itself would mean there had to be a, a rethink uh, down in London and also it's interesting isn't it that we wouldn't be on our own negotiating because we would if we'd signed up to the treaty we would get help to um, to carry those negotiations through so that in itself is a you know is a, is a big deal so Bill if you got anything you want to add to that yeah there's one one particular point I think about the support an independent Scotland Scottish state becomes a ratifier of the TPNW the, the support that we get from the institutions of the United Nations. So basically the International Atomic Energy Agency and other organisations of the United Nations, we would get their expertise and support. So the idea that it's, you know, small Scotland, I mean, we deal, we've dealt with that one during Indian F1, but we then, we have the United Nations institutions and experts, and they would be involved in that process that is a real aid when we get around to the mechanics diplomacy around the removal. That's really quite important. Well, one thing I think with independence, it's very important on this issue 
Uh, now, I'm not in favour of NATO membership. I accept that's SNP policy. Uh, and I accept that's a decision that an independent Scotland would have to make. I think it is absolutely crucial that it says the decision to apply for NATO membership or not apply, but that decision comes after we have sorted out the issue of nuclear weapons in Scotland okay. and that we uh, have ratified this treaty. Now, the reason for that is that if you applied while you still have the UK's nuclear weapons, every kind of pressure would come on us to delay it or oh, give them 10 years, you know, rental of the, the, the site and so on and so on. So every kind of pressure would come on. But as in all negotiations, if it is absolutely clear, no, we're not even asking for membership until we have dealt with this, right. then that yeah. is different. I think the NATO issue is a very important one. And it's, I mean, one of the key things that should be remembered, she quotes in her paper, the votes she had, 394 for NATO membership and 365 against a margin of 29. Actually, in the first vote, when, that, when the cars were not counted, it was only 15. So it was very, very, very close. And the point about NATO membership, in my view, it should be used as a diplomatic card. In other words, yeah. if you want us to join, then these are, these are the, you know, it's a transactional thing. And the idea that Scotland is too isolated to, you know, I mean, it's an absurd. I mean, just look at the map of Europe. Scotland is in one of the most geopolitically stable yeah. regions of the world. Yeah. The idea that anybody's coming to get Scotland anytime soon is absurd. Indeed, I remember there was an, and the Scottish public agree with this because I remember it was a telephone poll, I grant you, I think, but I believe there was a poll where they asked people, whoever commissioned to ask people, they thought the likelihood of an invasion. Of, of, yes, yes, of, I remember. Of the British Isles. They literally put this, in, and, and and the idea of an invasion from you know outer space got five percent, and the invasion <laughs> of, of of the British Isles got something like three or four percent. And of course, <laughs> that's actually although, although that's tongue in cheek, actually that's geopolitical reality, because yeah. if you look at a map of Europe and where Scotland is, we are in one of the most geopolitical stable areas of the world. We're not as geopolitically stable as, say, New Zealand is, but, I mean, what I, I keep asking this when I'm in seminars and sometimes I get ignored by, by, by the speakers about this, but I say to them, at what point in the ferry from a land to a Cairn Ryan, does the purser have to come on and say, a warning, warning, you're leaving one of the most geopolitical stable parts of the world? and entering this dangerous and uncertain world. It's just a nonsense. Scotland is nestled in one of the most stable areas of the world. So the idea we're going to be invaded anytime soon, it's complete tosh. We can use a mate NATO yeah, members. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, and presumably, as well as being sort of geopolitically stable, it's also geopolitically important, I would guess, <laughs> to, to NATO. I mean, given, you know, we're on where we are in the wee corner up there. and Actually, you know, it's not. They say it is, but actually... Geopolitically important equals, oh my God, the Russians are coming with a GDP. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the idea that, the idea that the, I mean, if, if the Russians are going to invade anywhere, they're not going to invade Scotland. Uh, so the idea that the Russians are coming is just complete and utter toss yeah. because right. they have a GDP about Italy. And I remember one time when I was a, an EIS senior office bearer, I was at a conference in Stock, uh, Stockholm. 
there was a, a chap who, who who was there as an, an intern, and he was a Russian chap, and he'd, he'd served in the Donbass area. I was told this by someone at the meeting. You got to meet this chap because he was an intern with, with educational education international, but he'd worked somewhere else. And I actually said to him, "But you've only got the GDP of of Italy." And he was he was really offended by it because you know the Russians they will deliberately bang the hard you know the, yeah. the drum as well. But yeah. Scotland is not going to be, in fact, the United Kingdom is not going to be invaded yeah. by anyone. That's why the Royal Navy can go halfway around the world, because no one's coming to get us. No one's coming to get us here. <laughs> Just going back to, to what we were saying about um, let's get the nuclear weapons and, and us joining the TPNW in place before we start talking about joining NATO or not. Is signing that treaty something that an independent Scottish government can just do or does it, is it the kind of thing there needs to be a, a referendum about? No, it's a policy. It would be the policy of a political party. Moreover, and Isabel will maybe talk more about this, mm -hmm. but the TPNW is actually designed in such a way that Scotland could 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 actually sit, be, mm -hmm. become a signatory. It's not a signatory, a ratifier of the TPNW and then join a military alliance if it wanted to. So, you know, the, the, it's not an either or, it's not an either or situation. So, but, but, but Isabel is absolutely right. We become ratifiers of the TPNW and then then we can look at NATO membership. And if Stoltenberg turns around and says, ah, well, if you people join the TPNW, you can't join NATO. We just shrug our shoulders and say, yeah. you know, wow, yeah. you know. Yeah, okay. They won't, they won't do that. They won't, they won't yeah. I mean, they'll mumble, but they won't actually do that. They'll yeah. mumble. Okay, there'll be murmurings <laughs> off stage. And John, you want to come in? Yeah, just on a wider effect of independence is what happens to the actual nuclear weapons themselves. <laughs> it would cost a huge amount of money and billions to move them. Where do you move them to? Now, there are places in England that could take over hosting the nuclear submarines but there's nowhere that can do what happens at Coalport mm -hmm. um, which is nuclear weapons storage they just yeah. simply don't have anything yeah. uh, you know for geographic and what's the word about how deep the stones are I'm terribly sorry geological that's a major issue yeah. um, and they have talked about storing them with the Americans, Leo de Long in France. And the most bizarre one is that they will create a British overseas territory in Scotland. So that they basically can state where they are, but Scotland has no right to say what happens to them. And that's just beyond peculiar. Yeah, I was just saying one of the very valuable things that the late John Ainsley did, it was during the referendum campaign, produced two very well-informed, as all his work was, uh, reports, one on disarming Trident, one on Trident, nowhere to go, uh, showing that getting rid of it here, in effect, means the UK uh, ceases, in effect, to be a nuclear power. But the disarming Trident, he went through the details, is not really difficult to disarm because it's a matter of taking uh, the warheads off the missiles and you remove a pin or so, <laughs> which the skilled personnel is there to do actually at Cookport, uh, out of the warheads. Now, the, the disposal, the 
taking them back down and the disposal of them. Uh, Burfield, which makes the warheads, and Aldermaston, which is a lot of the technical skills, that would be their job. What they cannot do, uh, and they, they would have to have storage facilities uh, developed as well, but what they cannot do is have a place for functioning Trident submarines. They could if they spent an awful lot of money uh, and and worked over 20 years to build it, but in practice they couldn't. I think one of the things we should remember to remind people, Ireland has been such a positive player in the TPNW and as in a number of other international disarmament treaties, it's played a very positive UN role. We've got the situation where there you have Ireland got elected as one of the temporary members of the UN Security yeah. Council. They're there yeah. for two years. Uh, because it's well respected for all the work it's done with the UN and with UN peacekeeping, it's there spending 3% of its GDP on military. So it's, it's an example for us of where you can play a very positive, constructive role on international relations yeah. and be safe. All of this is sort of painting a very attractive, I mean, you know, other scenario, isn't it? I know there was the five scenarios that we're, we're talking about that Re Rebecca came up with, but there's also a kind of, for those of us in Scotland, a very, well, I think, appealing scenario of not only becoming independent, but then, you know, over, say, the next five, ten years after that, because, because we'll sign up to TPNW, mm -hmm. then becoming independent and that then starting the ball rolling, maybe, certainly start the ball rolling from the point of view of um, the UK's nuclear deterrent, maybe even it being dismantled, who, you know, who knows, but, but yeah. maybe also um, sending out wider ripples around the world. Firstly, a technical point that John Ainsley explained to me one day, Nuclear weapons get removed from Scotland all the time. It's just that they come back again. The structures are there to actually remove a lot of the stuff. It's just that it's cyclic. Yes. That's the first yeah. point. The second point is that the missiles, not the warheads, but the missiles are actually rented from the United States. Yeah. As John once said, if you're to take Trident missiles, serial number 1234567 in year one, it could be on one of the Vanguard class. And then six years later, it could be one on yeah. the same missile. Having gone back to Kings Bay and been reconditioned, it could be on an American submarine. So therefore, that shows how, in a technical sense, how easy it is yeah. to actually keep them away. However, and the point about England is, and I think we have to be careful about this, I believe in self-determination, just not for Scotland, but for other countries. And in that sense, I think that us saying... We're going to get rid of them. It's up to the people of England to then decide what they want to do with it. Because the anti-Brexit people, and I was against Brexit, don't get me wrong, I consider it an exercise in self-harm. But there's a danger. I, I think when Scotland, when Scottish MPs get involved in the after-Brexit decision was made, the, the, the mm -hmm. campaign that was trying to get the UK back into the, back into the, the yeah. EU, there's a condescension there. And we can't lecture to the people of England about what they want to do with it. And that, that's for them to do, because people's vote in England was one of the most condescending exercises in, in, in English politics. We have to say to the people, you have your conversation, you decide what you're going to do with it. And I think we need to, they need to think about having, starting to have that conversation now. Yeah. And some of them are, but it's yeah. for them 
to decide what they want to do. Because I believe if we're turning around and say, ha ha, you've nowhere to put them, that's for them to decide. I think that's a really good point to bring in as well. I think the point that you made about raising awareness is an absolutely crucial one. We need to make more of the population of Scotland aware, not only of the dangers in military terms, but of the dangers in political terms. If the UK government, for example, can think about making an overseas territory in Scotland, you know, what else have they got planned? Yes, we do have plans. We are going to be part of a group going to the conference in Vienna for the first member of party states. Oh, yeah. We're starting to build a series of events. We have undertaken a number of events over the weekend around the specific anniversary of entry into force of the TPNW. So the answer to your questions is yes. Yeah, good. That's I'm great. I'm really sorry, good. but on that point, I really do have to go because I'm about to do an interview with Rebecca Johnson. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. Well, <laughs> it's been brilliant being here. Thank you very much, Marilyn. And I hopefully will be able to join you again soon. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Thanks for coming. So, Bill, you want to say a bit about um, SNPCND? Yeah. Firstly, I encourage everybody who's watching this to join Scottish CND. That's point number one. To members of the Scottish National Party who happen to be watching this, I would advise you to join Scottish CND because when you do, when you've got the two membership cards, that means that you can automatically become a member of SNPCND. So if you're already an SNP member, you join Scottish CND, you automatically, for no extra cost, become a member of SNP CND. All you need to do is when you join, you simply say to the Scottish CND office, John and his colleagues, eh, that you want to go onto the SNP CND mailing list. And it means you can become involved in our activities where we speak to SNP branches and whatnot. It was just that point. So if yeah. you're a member of the S of Scottish CND, and you're a member of the SNP and there are a lot in that situation and you've not let Scottish CND know, please do so because then you can become involved in our activities. It was that wee plug. Thank you. We'll finish there. It's really fascinating um, talking to talking to the three of you. And, and again, thanks for coming on the programme. Are either of you thinking of going to Vienna for the conference? Yes, COVID willing. I plan to go. I'm looking at uh, flights and I'm looking at accommodation at the moment. Indeed, I'm going to be speaking to John, who's just left us later this week, about some of the accreditation issues about it. But I plan to go as part of Civic Scotland under the CND umbrella. Well, yeah. I hope to get to go. Uh, Isabel, are you thinking about it? No, but uh, I certainly hope that the Scottish Government and even more so the Scottish Parliament mm. will have an observer or observers yeah, there. Yeah. Hopefully the conference will happen in March, but um, even if it gets a little bit postponed mm -hmm. because of COVID reasons, I would say it's a dead set that I'll be emailing you um, to, to find out what happened at the conference. I'm going to send you a wee message with picturesque Vienna in the background. <laughs> yeah, okay then. Thanks again for Thank coming. You. Bye -bye. Thank you. Well, that was a really interesting discussion. Thoroughly enjoyed listening to that. Do you know what struck me is, was how both John Cairns and earlier in that David Kelly clip, they both mentioned the sort of toxic masculinity element yeah. of the nuclear debate as yeah. the kind of, you know, one of the factors, yeah. which is, it was, I thought was quite interesting. What were your thoughts on the conversation there?
I really enjoyed when we were just when we were going through those five scenarios, what they had to say to them. I mean, so I I was rather focused on the third one, but I I, I noticed that Bill and both Bill and Isabel actually talked quite a lot about the first two, and in particular mm. the second one, not so much deliberate use of nuclear weapons, um, but an accident. And uh, yeah, well, indeed, you know, there there have been near misses. Bill was describing, which I I found that quite chilling. Well, you think it's only thirty miles from. Glasgow as well, yeah. the most populated city in Scotland. Um, the other thing that struck me as well was, I think it was Bill describing how we talk about how difficult it would be to move these things. And yet he says, but they're being moved all the time. <laughs> There's missiles being brought in and out. Yeah. And the other, yeah. the other thing I found quite very interesting was when Isabel described how easy it is to actually disarm them. You just, you're taking a pin out. You know, then what happens to the, the, the nuclear waste and the rest of the sub is kind yeah. of England's problem to decide yeah. what they want to do with yeah. it. But yeah. as far as we're concerned, if it's no longer armed, then that's a big step forward. It, uh, yes, indeed. And I, I was quite struck when Bill made a point of saying, remember, once we're independent, well, he didn't quite put it like this, but um, how I'm putting it is it, we mustn't fall into the trap of then starting to tell England what they should do about their nuclear weapons. Mm. It's, it, is, it will be their choice. And um, if yes. they decide to keep them, well, that is completely their their decision. We may think it's um, not a good decision to have made, but it is their decision. Um, so yes, if Scotland goes independent, it will force Westminster government into you know a complete um, revamp of, of um, of how they're going to look after these weapons, and no doubt there will be some, you know, discussion about, uh, you know, whether to keep them or not. But that will be mm. their discussion and uh, their decision. When Bill earlier was talking about the percentages from different countries who supported the treaty, although the UK was the lowest, it was fifty-eight percent, and we don't know how much that would, what that would be, divided out between Scotland and England, which could yeah. well be quite different. Yeah. Um, it still suggests that potentially a majority of people in England yeah. don't want nuclear weapons and yes. possibly don't want them more when they're on their doorstep rather than ours. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, next, just to sort of round off the discussions, we have Kirsten Oswald, who is SNP um, MP for East Renfrewshire. She is also the deputy leader at Westminster and she's chair of parliamentary CND. And she is responding to earlier discussion of the report from Rebecca Johnson that we played the clip of. So we yes, thought it was interesting just to get um, Kirsten's response to what what those five points were that, that Rebecca yes made. yes that's right she was one of the speakers in during during the launch I I, I was listening into it I, I did uh, grin myself when I noticed that every time any mention got made of Scotland becoming independent Kirsten sat with a big smile on her face <laughs> as do so, we all <laughs> as do we all well yeah as do we all on this on 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 the on, on this set yeah. of presenters anyway okay so to Kirsten Oswald really positive to see such large numbers of, of people on the uh, the virtual event here um, and it has been fascinating to hear the, the speeches that have been de delivered so far and, and to uh, you know give some thought to what's been said. I think there's a, a lot more thinking to, to do based upon what we, we've heard today and uh, I'm looking forward to the, the Q&A uh, on, on the same basis. But I think that the Rebecca's report that, that we're launching today is really important. Um, I, I think that it, it does 
remind us of a, a road that we, we've travelled down uh, a long way, but um, as Julian has uh, very eloquently laid out, we, we certainly have uh, some way to go there when we try and think about how to, to rid the world of the, the threat of nuclear weapons. And I think that the, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons must be an important milestone on the route to their elimination. And you know we've heard very clearly why that's so important. And I think that what Rebecca has set out actually is a vital source of information and arguments. It reminds us that over 50,000 nuclear weapons have already been dismantled and destroyed, and the remaining 13,000 are held by just nine states. So if the UK was to cease to hold a nuclear arsenal, it would join the 95% of countries which already exist without such weapons. And I think what the report also does is to very powerfully undermine the argument that holding nuclear weapons makes the UK safer. Unless the UK is prepared to initiate a immoral and criminal nuclear response to some kind of non-nuclear threat, then these weapons are irrelevant militarily to the day-to-day -day security of the UK. And, you know, that's, a, I think, a discussion that we could and should labour on as much as possible. The, the, the problem is, I guess, the sad fact is that the, the UK's adherence to its status as a nuclear power is a throwback to a, a bygone age. It's one that the, the current UK government does, however, seem rooted to. Um, and, you know, that's perhaps part of its own ideological vision of, of what Great Britain um, or Global Britain as as they see it should be. I think perhaps it, it, it feels a bit like nothing's been learned since 1962 when Dean Aitchison, the, the former US Secretary of State, said, Great Britain has lost an empire and not yet found a role. The attempt to play a separate power role, that is a role apart from Europe, a role based on a special relationship with the United States, is about to be played out. If only somebody had told the European Research Group to do their research, they've basically taken Britain back down a well-worn path, but it's one that leads to a dead end. And in the, the ERG version of the world, Britain's nuclear arsenal is a key to a seat at the top table. But actually, in reality, it's a millstone around the, the neck of the UK's military. It diverts funding, it diverts capacity away from their day job, and it leaves armed forces personnel in a very difficult position where they need to try and use resources that are not sufficient to the, the day job that they're trying to do. So if the UK really did want to be a global leader, then perhaps it should look more seriously at its own paper commitment to nuclear non-proliferation, halt the expansion in the number of nuclear warheads. And I thought it was fascinating earlier on to hear an argument for an extended number of nuclear warheads as somehow being part of a road to a nuclear free world. And for me, that simply doesn't square. But I think that any steps from the UK in terms of disarmament, would send a really powerful message to other countries to stop spending money on weapons that will, as we see it, never be used. And I think that the, the quote from Dean Aitchison also reminds us of how the UK became tied to nuclear weapon systems that make it very much a junior partner to the USA. Because having exhausted its capacity to maintain an independent nuclear capability, the UK looks to America for help. And that's how we ended up with the American-dependent submarine-based Polaris missile system, which was housed at Faz Lane, eh, not too far from where I'm sitting in my house, actually, just a few miles along the River Clyde. Um, and Americans, the American's nuclear submarine base at the Holy Loch also, which had been made available in return for American help. And the arrival of these two bases 
has played a really fundamental role in shaping Scottish politics and that's continued to to, to play a part in shaping Scottish politics for more than half a century now. So although the American base is now gone and Polaris is also long gone and the, the UK is moving on to a third generation of nuclear missile carrying submarines and we all know the eye-watering cost of that, there is no way to take this debate out of Scottish politics and out of Scottish discourse. The, the sidelining of the, the concerns of people in Scotland about this concentration of nuclear weapons just a stone's throw from our biggest city has created an impact that will, I think, continue to be felt in our politics for, for a long time. Because all the, all the evidence that we can see tells us that these weapons are housed in Scotland despite the opposition of the people in Scotland because on a consistent basis Scottish Civic Society, the Scottish Trade Union Congress, uh, Scotland's churches, the Scottish Parliament and the vast majority of Scotland's MPs oppose nuclear weapons. And Scotland's local authorities are also joining the, the many towns and cities and countries and federal states around the world that are passing or have passed resolutions usually on a cross-party basis, and that's something that perhaps we could come back to in support of the TPNW or calling for council pension funds to divest from both fossil fuels and nuclear weapons. And I think that Rebecca's report and the way that it's framed, asking the questions that it does, will help us, I think, to accelerate that discussion. And I think that that's really important. And of course, the Scottish government has a long-standing position of opposition to the possession, to the threat and to the use of nuclear weapons. And the Scottish government has condemned nuclear weapons as morally, strategically and economically wrong. And again, I would go back to the report, which does show that this is a, a distinct uh, discussion that we have here. And I think it's one that's really important to, to try and extend. And Scottish ministers have expressed strong support for the principles of the TPNW and urged the UK government to sign. So there is that stark contrast in approach in terms of Scotland, where the UK nuclear arsenal is housed, but where we are prevented from signing up to the TPNW and that of independent Ireland, whose leadership role was critical in the development and ratification of the treaty. And I was interested in the, the section of the report which talks about independence. Of course, I would be interested in that with uh, my, my political beliefs, but I, th I think that it's undoubted that an independent Scotland will be a keen signatory of the treaty. And I, I would encourage everyone who um, is keen on trying to make a change in the, the UK um, stance on nuclear weapons to factor that into your calculations on the way forward because change is certainly coming here. And Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon joined CND before she joined the SNP. So I think that that perhaps speaks to the, 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 the depth of feeling in Scotland and the long-standing concerns that we have here. Indeed, when she was asked um, a, a time ago about a possible coalition government at Westminster, she actually made it clear that scrapping Trident would be a requirement for the SNP in participating in any coalition. Obviously, in reality, it's unlikely that such a, a coalition would actually get off the ground because Westminster is so focused on a, a macho punching above our weight UK culture instead of focusing on things that can actually make a difference. And I have to say, I, I much prefer the, the First Minister's approach to focusing on priorities. And when she was asked if she would use nuclear weapons, she said she had a moral objection to weapons of mass destruction and that she would not be prepared to press a nuclear button that might kill tens of millions of people. 
So if I, I could borrow another phrase from Dean Aitchison, he said, there'll be no learning period with nuclear weapons. Make one mistake and you'll destroy nations. And the report goes on to highlight American records on the use of non-nuclear drones in terms of revealing patterns of failure there which have caused the death and injury of many civilians, including women and children. And of course, the people who control these drones are just people, just as those who are in control of the nuclear weapons are. And we heard about the, the pressure that, of course, would exist if you were in that decision-making situation. So reality um, tells us that errors and miscalculations can occur to any of us at any time. And I think that that's one of the key points that we need to really try and focus governmental minds on when they're thinking about nuclear weapons, not only about when they can ever be used, which in my book is never, but also why such a, a dangerous um, and, you know, a dangerous and unchangeable weapon should ever be part of an armory at all. And I guess that if I'm moving to a conclusion that some of the things that really strike me are that Rebecca's report drives home the message that we're not on a linear path to nuclear disarmament. Part of Trump's legacy is the loss of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. And part of Boris Johnson's legacy is an increase in the number of UK warheads, which of course is contrary to its treaty obligations. And ha that has made Scotland once again an unwilling accomplice in the storage of these. So people in Scotland, and, and I hope that people across the UK too, are increasingly clear that money spent on Trident leaves large gaps in the defence budget. It means that we are paying a price in terms of jobs. The MOD's own figures show that while the MOD is prepared to spend so much, such eye-watering sums on Trident renewal, they're cutting defence jobs in Scotland. And I think that the report's recommendation and to look further at the, the work carried out by the Scottish Government Working Group on a Scotland without nuclear weapons could help us to find a way forward more broadly. And I'm sure Rebecca would have a, a view on that as a former member of the group. I know that um, she may share the frustration of the, the chair, Bruce Crawford, at the limitations that the group faced at some points because of the, the split of reserved and, and devolved powers. But whether these frustrations or, or the other frustrations and barriers we've heard about today, I think that we, we must persist in trying to find ways to discuss this and trying to pin down some of the, the real concerns and the, the reasons why this is so problematic. And I think that that's a, a pretty clear message that comes through today. And, and I would absolutely encourage people to have a look at the report. It's set out in a way that makes it entirely possible to look at the, the different sections and uh, not be overwhelmed by the, the amount of information there. So I've no doubt that we will have a significant a degree of discussion about that ongoing in months to come and I, I would really welcome that but I, I think that's probably a uh, time for me to stop. So that was Kirsten Oswald's response. Now if you would like to read Rebecca Johnson's report for yourself. Very straightforward, go to the UK CND website, you can download the report. The report itself, just uh, to say again, is called Nuclear Weapons Are Banned what does this mean for Britain? If you'd like to watch the launch itself, so you'll get a, a lot more of what Rebecca said, and, and there, were, there were other people there who were also responding to the report, you can find that on the UK CND Facebook page, and you can watch the video. I hope you've enjoyed our first episode. Just a couple of things coming up that we wanted to, to let you know about. On the 22nd of February, if you're not sick of the sight of me and Marlene, you can watch us again on our other show, Mibby's Eye, which is more for people who are undecided about independence. So, First episode of Mibby's Eye, the other new show, 
will be on Tuesday the 22nd at 8 o'clock. Put it really briefly, maybe Zai, what we're looking to do is produce good material about the kinds of topics that are of real concern to people who have not yet made their mind up about independence. And maybe just kind of maybe's I, maybe's no. So we're going to focus on uh, the kind of subjects that are of concern to them. And well, you and I might be out and about with our new fluorescent jackets for doing we, box pops. We might indeed. <laughs> and they are very fluorescent, having they road are. tested it on Saturday. It really is. <laughs> I, I imagine we could be seen from space. Um, <laughs> Our second episode of this show, that'll be coming up on March the 4th. Don't know uh, exactly yet who's, who'll be part of the show, but two people who definitely will, um, I'm going to be talking to them together, are uh, Eileen Budd, who is an illustrator. With her will be Iona Fife, who's a um, very well-known Scots singer and also champion of the, the Scots language. It's, it's due to Iona that on Spotify, you can now say that you're singing in Scots. So that's it for this month and for our very first episode of the Indie Jigsaw Show. Thanks so much for listening and we'll catch up with you all next month. You've been listening to the first episode of the Scottish Indie Jigsaw Show, produced for Independence Live Media. The hosts were Fiona McGregor and Marlene Halliday and the music was Kevin MacLeod's Inspired. You can contact us by email on mibizai at independencelive.net.